Hi, I'm Jessica Ramirez, and this is Seedcast. Today, we're honored to spotlight a podcast full of knowledge and solutions from Aboriginal peoples. It's called Lore of the Land, Nature Reparations Through an Indigenous Lens. It's produced in Australia, and we'll share some of it with you today. There is hope, there is strength, there is power, there is change in you and I, in you and I. The podcast Lore of the Land that we're going to share with you is produced by an organization called the Aboriginal Carbon Foundation. It's led by Indigenous rangers, and they work with Indigenous traditional owners on carbon farming. Basically, that means they connect Aboriginal communities who are taking care of their lands to organizations who want to offset their carbon pollution. Their goals are to build wealth for Aboriginal peoples, to address climate change, and to support indigenous cultures. Lore of the Land is hosted by Sean Apo, who describes himself as a proud Murray man, descended from the Gubby Gubby and Baragaba nations, with a bit of Danish and Sri Lankan thrown in. My name is Sean Apo from the Aboriginal Carbon Foundation. I'd like to start by paying my respects to the Yuan people, um, working and staying on their lands at the moment, and I'd like to thank them for letting me um, travel and, and work on their country for the last week and a half. And his guest on the episode we're sharing today is Joe Morrison. He's the Chief Executive Officer of the Indigenous Land and Sea Corporation, also known as ILSC. It's an organization that works to redress the dispossession of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. They help Indigenous Australians to acquire and manage land and water rights. And Sean starts by asking Joe a very Aboriginal question. What's your mob? It's a way of asking who's your family, your tribal group, or your wider Aboriginal community. Joe, do you want to start by just uh, telling us who you are, where you're from, and who's your mob? Yeah, sure. Um, Thanks, Sean. Uh, Well, I'm Joe Morrison. Um, I come from and I grew up on... Dugaman country in the Northern Territory. Um, also have connections into the Torres Strait with our Mualgal peoples. But I, uh, I I grew up in a little town called Catherine and, you know, spent most of my life there. Um, uh, still rooted in that place um, and rooted to that, that country, that, that soil and the importance of the country and uh, the spear grass uh, and also the river and the springs that are abound in that country. So um, that's where I come from. I'm uh, now, fortunately, uh, on the lands and waters of uh, Wadawurrung people in, in Victoria. So I'm very, very blessed to have been on many Indigenous peoples' country um, and uh, pretty happy being on Wadawurrung country at the moment. Excellent. We're sharing part of Joe and Sean's conversation today, but if you want to geek out on the policy work that they do, I highly recommend listening to the entire episode. And you can find more interviews with Aboriginal voices on Lore of the Land wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to Joe Morrison, Shauna Poe, and the Lore of the Land and Indigenous Land and Sea Corporation teams for sharing this episode. Now, here we are with an excerpt from Lore of the Land talking about native title meaning Aboriginal rights to land and waters.
This land is me Rock, water, animal, dream They are my song My beings here Where I belong This land owns me From generations past um, well, look, there's probably a lot of people who will listen to this who don't know a lot about Native Title. So given that you're actually going through it now, do you want to just give a brief summation of of, of what that process has been like for your own mob? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll give it a, a bit of a global context because, the you know, the job that I'm in is really important in that Native Title context too because, um, you know, I came to this role uh, after, you know, working 30 years in that sort of context around land rights, native title, you know, running the Northern Land Council, it's the largest land council in the country and it's got a big native title practice. Um, but also, you know, the, the ILSC was born out of the native title debate and argument. Um, you know, it was born because of the uh, amendments that were put into the Native Title Act, uh, particularly around the inability for some groups to prove their continuous connection um, and so that's a very sad situation. But regardless, the ILSC has been established to assist particularly those groups that weren't able to meet those requirements. Um, and so, you know, we've got all these hurdles that we've got to run through, which is, uh, in my mind, it's the story of native title because it's full of hurdles, it's full of challenges. Um, firstly, you've got to prove connection to a place and you've got to have continuous connection to that place. Uh, and so for us and Catherine... Um, being dispossessed uh, in, well, starting to be dispossessed in the late 1800s. Uh, it's a long, long time of dispossession and other Aboriginal groups coming into town, sharing that country with them, um, having to go through, uh, you know, massacres, uh, and then uh, growing up in an era where, you know, we weren't, we weren't told uh, that you should espouse your Aboriginal annally. You, you've got to you know, you've got to fit in with the with the white people who, at the time when land rights was coming into the Northern Territory, there was a lot of opposition. Um, and in that town that I grew up, there was a group called Rights for Whites that used to meet to uh, walk through the streets of Catherine and oppose land claims, which they did in the, in the case of um, the Gorge or what's now called Nippalop. Um And that sort of, you know, really set the scene for, uh, I guess, us lodging out native title claim, obviously we couldn't uh, go down the land rights route because the land tenure was uh, not claimable. Um, so we went down the native title route and that was lodged 24 years ago. We've lost all but one of our senior old people. Um, uh, notwithstanding that, we're still here and we're still practising and, and talking about it um, and working through the process. Having to deal with questions of identity um, and authenticity uh, are always difficult for people to deal with when you've uh, grown up in a society that hasn't been kind to Indigenous people and Indigenous identity and having to go to school with a lot of kids, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous, that were not kind to those people who were saying that this was their country. Um, you know, it was always always going to be a, a challenge. So Native title's hard enough um, for groups that have uh, remained... Uh, strongly intact and connected to their country. Um, and it's particularly difficult for those uh, with a, you know, a town or a city plonked in the middle of their country and then having to be subservient to the culture of the Westerners and having to put up with that day, to day, day in, day out. So 
it's uh, it's challenging to um, prove that, but it's also challenging to remain connected to your country and to prove that you've uh, always um, performed your uh, laws and customs as they were handed down through the generations at a time when uh, people did everything they could to stop you from getting access to your country. So um, it's been a challenge and, you know, it's a, it's a good day today because uh, not far from where I am, the Eastern Ma here in Victoria have just had their land determined by the full federal court. So, you know, there are small wins. There's obviously been some appalling losses and, uh, you know, we, we talk about and turn to the Yorta Yorta case, which is ridiculous really when you understand how Yorta Yorta now have moved on from all of that and, you know, they're as strong as Indigenous groups as anyone else that I've come across, but they didn't meet that uh, continuous connection requirement. Um, so native title is uh, is one that it could either make groups or it could uh, destroy groups in my books. Um, and we've seen certainly a lot of groups that have really struggled with it, um, particularly in and around big settlements and towns and cities and so forth. I mean, obviously, um, it was all Indigenous country and it was all owned and managed uh, prior to uh, and during the early period of settlement and colonisation. How does that intersect uh, with the with the national good or the you know the national discourse? And given we're having conversations about voice and treaty and truth, I think it's very timely to talk about uh, the role of Indigenous country and people who are on their country and managing their country because I've always said that they're, they're not there doing it for themselves only, they're, they're doing it for everyone. Um, and we see that at a global level where you, you think about Indigenous uh, people, the most special places left on the planet are places where Indigenous people have always managed those places. Um, it's probably getting to a point where there needs to be some sort of national conversation and a gathering uh, of Indigenous people involved in that space to start thinking about what the future might look like and, and not leave it up to governments and their funding programs to determine uh, what Indigenous self-agency or determination in that space might look like. Well, you're not alone in saying things like that. I've heard that from a few people um, recently, so I think we should uh, definitely try and put that at the top of our priority list to see if we can make that happen. Yeah. I guess the other thing about, so getting back to talking about the old people. So, you know, I'm sure you and I share a very similar um, worldview in that, like, we we were brought up by our old people. We were taught a lot of, a lot of our um, attitudes by our old people. Certainly recognise that I, I'm here standing on the shoulders of giants who sort of um, put me on the right path to be able to not just have a decent um, standard of living for myself, but to be able to make sure that I'm giving back to community, that I'm trying to provide other opportunities and I, I see you as being in a very similar position. And, you know, you're saying that in, in your own native title experience, there's only one elder left who was there at the start of this process. Like what, what kind of... Um, what kind of role do you see yourself having in that sort of transition period of being a sort of um, a link between the old people and the and the new generations and the, and the new opportunities coming through? Yeah, no, I agree with you, Sean, that I think, you know, we're all here because of old people, really, at the end of the day, the people that, that stood up and fought, but also the people that, that didn't survive um, as well and, uh, you know, had a extremely difficult time when... Uh, settlers first arrived and um, you know I've always 
uh, wherever I've gone, sought out old people and, and made sure that they knew that I was there and paid respects to them. Um, it's, I think it's a it's an art form and level of respect that unfortunately um, is not in all of our um, meetings and gatherings. So I always try and pay respects to old people, just not saying it, but also actually doing it and going to see them. And so that's that's really important because. Um, you know, old people were the people who had the knowledge, they had their connection, they had the stories, um, and they also uh, had lived experiences and an ability to reflect on some of the things that have happened before, but also to understand what some of the solutions might look like. Um, and so when I, when I talk about old people, you know, I talk about them in, in that context as not just being uh, static, uh, but also constantly giving and even after they're passed on you know their memories are alive and their energy is always with us so I think it's really important that when we talk about what we do in the future we're we're doing it from that context of old people um, and the things that they've given uh, all of us which I think are immense gifts to be able to speak about the sorts of things from their from their learnings uh, but also contextualize so um, for me old people and the notion of elders um, is one that's pretty significant. Um, and that leads to, you know, a broader sort of conversation in my mind really around um, this sort of disconnect between people and country. And I talk about it a, a lot um, and I find as I get older, I'm sort of talking about it more and more. Um, uh, and I could see that there are a lot of people that just don't get it or probably don't want to get it. Um, and recently I was at a... Uh, national oceans gathering talking about that and I could see that people are struggling with the concept of humanity being disconnected to nature and so they talk about nature as being something that could be exploited all the time and it's like when when is humanity going to learn its lesson that you just can't continually exploit things that you've got to you've got to live within that you've got to celebrate it and you've got to uh, understand and respect things and you've got to have some you know, customs and ability to be able to perform your connection to that. Um, and so people, I think, um, don't really understand that. I think there's a lot of work that I need to do in that space. Spending a lot of time in the last 30 years talking to people about ranger programs and carbon and the importance of that. But I think for me, it's now a bit of a new sort of journey of trying to reconnect people into the nature discourse so we don't we don't talk about those two things as separate same in the nature reparations uh market that's been established here in australia saying to the minister you, you can't talk about that as being something that's just got to be fixed and it could be fixed by anyone because indigenous people have got a very unique connection to the australia's nature and they've got to be embedded in it and you just can't um afford you know, farmers or anyone else, as good as it sounds, to have the same level of connectivity to places as Indigenous people because it's just not appropriate. So um, I think for me there's a there's a lot of work to be done in that space, Sean. Well, that brings us nicely onto the next question, which is about, so if we take it up to the very top level, what kind of policy recommendations would you make to the various levels of government to be able to enable some of the solutions that we've spoken about today, trying to get more um, people, more mob back on the country working in this space. My lesson is that you just can't do one thing and leave, you know, the policy work to someone else. We need Aboriginal people in Parliament House and forming 
ministers about legislation and the policies that they're putting through. We need to be uh, debating with the public about the importance of this, that you can't not have fire, you've got to have more fire and as much as possible, for example, and uh, you, you need to think about that in the context of determination and prosperity for people who are living at a local level. So there's a range of things that I, you know, I've sort of learnt over the years that are really important to bring together, and I think um, having some Indigenous organisations with the ability and agency to be able to do that and not be contextualised by what the governments think um, you should be doing that could be just, you know, given some range group a bit of, you know, support for fire management when, in fact, there's all this other stuff that needs to be done as well. So that's a bit, you know, it's probably a bit of a PhD thesis in some ways, but um, that's kind of my thinking um, off the top of my head in a snapshot. Is that your pitch for a portfolio within The Voice? Oh, not at all. I mean, I'm I'm quite happy to sort of sit quiet these days. I'm um, I, I, you know, there's lots of lessons and there's there's lots of young emerging uh, leaders that could come and contribute as well. But I do think that, um, you know, we should we should learn from the past. Aboriginal people talk about it all the time and there's obviously space for that in the voice and treaty negotiations as well. Well, Joe, it's been an amazing uh, conversation and thanks for spending some time with us. Um, is there anything that you would like to add before we wrap up? No, just just finally, I, I you know I think um, you know people like yourself and Rowan and and myself that have been around sort of doing this work, and I know we're all we're all trying to find a little space for ourselves. Um, probably less so me. I'm feeling like I'm pretty old. I just want to get out of it, to be honest. But know that I can't. Um, so I think it's really important that uh, organisations like Nalsma and the the Foundation, ABC Foundation, and those sorts of organisations continue because. Um, longevity is really is a, is a really uh, important thing for Aboriginal people. Uh, when you ha- keep changing things like governments do, it's becoming pretty disruptive. So, uh, seeing faces that are familiar, having the trust, um, and also having people that are working at various levels, like you guys are starting to do now, I think it's really important. Um, we all make mistakes along the way, but I think if you're able to sort of um, understand and, and manage those things and, and move on from them, uh, I think it's really important. But I, at the end of the day, I think my key message is, you know, remain uh, rooted in country and people. Um, that's probably the most important thing for all of us. Don't um, don't let ourselves get disconnected from what goes on, you know, every day on country. It's really important that we, we have that, but we're also doing the important uh, negotiations, policy advice and all that sort of stuff as well. That sounds like a great place to end. So, uh, Mr. Joe Morrison, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Sean, and uh, good luck. Thanks, mate. This land is mine. This land is me. This has been another episode of Law of the Land, Nature Reparations Through an Indigenous Lens. My name is Sean Abbo from the Aboriginal Carbon Foundation. This podcast is produced by Eli Corliss.